reading verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Pray. Father, we thank you for the way that you have structured the church for our good. I pray that we would see it as such, that we would place ourselves underneath the authority of your word this morning as we would hear it preached, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive by the Lord, that you would illumine us with your word. I pray that you would strengthen the elders of this church to exercise oversight willingly, not to change for shameful gain, but eagerly, Lord, looking to shepherd the flock as you need to be shepherd us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Male and female, and they live in harmony, and they have offspring. That family. 
family unit is the fabric of society. Then from that family unit, it needs a focus, it needs a worship, it needs opportunities to bring glory to God through worshiping Him. That is the end for which this family unit was created. So then you have the church established, and the gathering of God's people. And that's your second sphere of authority. The family first, the church second, and then, of course, order for those who live. The civil magistrate is constructed early on in Genesis narrative. There is some sort of imbalance over time as anyone acknowledges through history throughout Henry entering into the medieval period, there is this weird kind of we have family church and civil magistrate and we kind of have church and civil magistrate functioning working in not as particularly distinctive roles as perhaps they should. Again, that's notable, but nonetheless that's history. And due to this kind of odd walk of the church and state together in this awkward dance, the unfortunate outcome through the consolidation of power is the loss of the office of elder. Who runs the church? The magistrate. Wait, I don't know. Yes, don't worry about it. It is magistrate. But what about our ministers? The, well, the, the, the ministers underneath the power wielded by the state. As you consider throughout early church history leading to the time of Reformation, the consolidation was not necessarily driven by sinful and wicked motivations. I think it gets a bad rap. Um, sure, it kind of grew into a place where we no longer have to do that. And it turned out that we do. We get a lot. But it wasn't necessarily set up because the intention was wrong and evil. In many ways, it was wise and prudential at times to make certain judgments about Consolidation, whether the consolidation was fair-minded and good and prudential at times, some better than others, nonetheless, such consolidation brought about the gradual decline, as I mentioned to you, to the eventual end of the office of elder in the churches of Christ. As a Reformed Church, celebrate together this day, October 31st, as a point and a turning point in the history of the church, what we call the recovery and reformation of the church of Christ in the events of the 15th century. Today, of course, many will enjoy Halloween candy. I am only a takeaway in on that, right or wrong, I'm completely indifferent. October 15th, October 31st, 1517. 
issue of consolidation of power and the issue to which Roman Catholic Church had a number of problems. But as that is certainly this happy Reformation day viewed for fellow Protestants, the work of Martin Luther and his patron of those 95 Theses of Grace, which changed quite literally the entirety of the world. A much less known wonderful fruit of obedience to Paul was the recovery of the office of elder in the church. Much more is said, of course, and, and rightfully so, on justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, the God's glory alone, and the testimony of Scripture alone. Of course, all wonderful things, but the testimony of Scripture alone is the establishment once again then of the office of elder in the church that men would use in churches at the time. When historian notes, on June 8th, 1530, you're moving forward from 1517 when the Reformation is beginning to take uh, shape, starting to gain its feet, and you're moving from 17th to the 30th. So on, on June 8th, 1530, the city council of Basel, Switzerland, Considered a proposal from Johannes Aquantiatus to do what? To restore the office of elder. This was the first time since the time of the apostles in which the idea of elder was to be used in the church. In that respect, it was a Again, we might not see that as the watershed that it really was. Of course, the modern church, most often. Why, why did the, the movement to restore the office of elder in the churches of Christ, why did it become so maybe not just secondary, but tertiary, never mind, not even tertiary way out in the past year? Why? Well, because we don't rightly consider the office of elder and its significance. Again, I want you to be able to separate, as I do, and you can see them to faith. As I speak of eldership, I'm not saying, so you need to love on them. It, 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 this is not the division. We're talking about the office established in the church, of which maybe I, myself, or, or Pastor Dan, and others as ruling elders serve in that capacity. But all of God's office are distinct. Um, no one man is any one thing in the church. Uh, as the church is not all things to all things. But again, the recovery and the further obedient execution of the office of elder is incredibly important to the elders of the church. Why? Because they are men tasked with shepherding the flock of God in this present world. Then when you read the moral and ethical requirements which we looked at last week, Men who enter into office by calling are ordained by the church to serve in the capacity of elder. And you read those moral qualifications. Surely you understand that that is who these men must be. Not that they embody these things ideally, but again, their their pursuit is often so within the dimension of who they are and who they need to continue to grow to be. John Piper, some of you may know, 
did to say of Elder Paula Skate, he said, quote, no pastor lives up to what he preaches. If he does, he's preaching too much. Again, it's an apostasy. Truly, you can find within my own life uh, a million faults. Before we consider the work of shepherding, and Peter's going to explain all of the various pieces and parts that are core to the ethics and leadership of elders. Notice the exhortation, however, before you see the work of it. This is how you execute your office. Notice the exhortation is grounded upon Peter seeing a fellow elder. That's not something to quickly skip over, especially considering this happened at the moment. Again, verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you. But I do so to you. I exhort you to perform, to be these men who must be this for the sake of the church. I exhort you as a fellow elder. Again, significantly, you notice Peter's self-chosen title here. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is presbyter, or as translated, elder. Why is that so significant? For a few reasons, but up front on this Happy Reformation Day, you see quite easily the Protestants, something that ought to be emphasized. Your identity with the Protestant church. Ecclesial structure and treating the other Christians ought to be the same. Or the vicar of Christ, who possesses executive power over the entirety of the churches of Christ. Rather, when Peter has an opportunity, and you think here, he writes to the church. As an apostle of Jesus Christ, one who could pull an authority structure and say, I have this right over the churches. Here he is given opportunity to write to the men who are leading the churches. To exhort by exclusive authority. Given the opportunity, it is noteworthy to all of us that he does not. Never once appeals to these men as their overlord, as their holy, or holy spirit. But he comes to them as a fellow Again, that sense of humility and leadership was certainly important. Paul is calling to the 
Satan did yield him before he exhorts him to his obedience. The task of a leader is to appeal as a follower to the strength of the elders of the church. Again, if Satan says that in sobriety is good for us for now, I think about, again, about five hours in this, but this being an elder in the church of Christ, One historian notes the comment here by Peter in the passage of Revelation for a king that says, he says, quote, Peter himself calls himself a fellow treasurer. One, with others. To unite with them. One who shepherds the flock of God like him. Not by compulsion, but willingly. Continue in the text, you notice the aspect of being an example. It's set further, not just as, as a fellow elder, and all that that embodies to do. I speak to you, fellow elders. But also he presses and leans in on the call for your elders to be an example further. As we speak in the remaining portion of verse 1, notice, I adore the elders among you. How do you do this? How do you make your feel as a fellow elder? Further, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Again, then he continues, nor as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Here, as you consider as a fellow elder, as one who is witness to sufferings and a partaker of future glory, Peter paints the picture. Faithful witness to the sufferings of Christ. Again, it seems the way that he's using the terminology here, he's not weighing in as one who is 
there that day when Christ was indeed nailed to the cross. But we know, largely, Peter was not there. Perhaps he could be referring to the life he lived with Christ for his years of ministry, no doubt, he witnessed the hardship that Christ experienced in his suffering in life. Those who turned their back on him, those who betrayed him, those who sought to persecute him. So he could be relying on these things as he thinks back as a witness of those particular sufferings. But I think more so here as we see a prevalence a comment on faithful witnesses to the sufferings of Christ speaks to Peter's faithful proclamation and steadfastness. Faithful witness like they are to be, or as he in terrible judgment says they are, but fellow witnesses in the suffering of Christ. On the other hand, he also, like them, is a partaker of the glory of Christ to the end. Look down in your text just for a moment, and we'll revisit this just in a couple of weeks. But if you look down in verse 4, he encourages them with the burden that they bear between verses 2 through 3. He exhorts and encourages Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Again, if you're a fellow preacher, a fellow elder in the church of Christ, uh, be sure of your calling and, and exercising it rightly as a witness to the sufferings of Christ, giving testimony thereof. And remember, you're a partaker, as I, in the glory that is going to be revealed, verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, when he is revealed, when he does appear, you will receive the unfading promise of glory. Again, here is Peter encouraging his fellow elders, men, Say it in a manner of not to make excuses for 
shepherd the flock of God this morning. And then you think, oh, what exactly, uh, what, 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 is, what is the thousand foot picture of this? It is the real exercise over. This is what we must do this morning. Obsession. If we were to summarize what he simply means by commanding, shepherd the flock of God, by doing what? Well, in the big picture, exercise oversight. It is simply this.
lay out the argument for the word so that the people of God can 